Hello and welcome at Book Lovers Companion. My name is Edith and right next to me is my lovely co-host, the Chattering Teacup. Hello. And here with us, not from Ireland, but from the UK, Sheila Bugler. Hello, Sheila, and welcome at Book Lovers Companion. Hello, thank you so much for hosting me tonight. I'm really, really excited to be here. Yeah, we are excited that you are here and not at Bloody Scotland. It's an honour. Well, I know. I'm one <laughs> of the few who's not at Bloody Scotland this weekend. <laughs> because you were joining us. Thank you. Exactly, I chose you. <laughs> <laughs> Your latest book, Black Valley Farm, came out in June this year. It's a standalone Compared yes. to your other series, you have a series with D.I. Ellen Kelly, mm -hmm. which has also been translated into German. Yes, that's right, it mm -hmm. has. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have another series with a former journalist, D. Doran. Yes. And another standalone with a plane crash. Mm -hmm. um, but Black Valley Farm is the latest one, and it's an interesting book with a lot of topics in there. Yeah, in the doesn't shine a very good or nice light on, on humans mm. and society. Mm. Yeah, to say it mildly. <laughs> Sheila, <laughs> tell, us, tell us about this book of yours. Um, so the book is... Um, oh, okay, so the, the, the main premise of the book is that um, nine years ago, eight, ten years ago, the bodies of nine people were found in a remote farmhouse in Lincolnshire. Nobody knows who the people were why they were living in the farmhouse or why they were killed. That's the basic kind of central premise of the book. Yep. And uh, the story is told from the perspective of, at the beginning, two main characters. The main character is a woman called Claire. All we know about Claire is that she is hiding from something. Um, she is hiding her identity. She doesn't want anyone to know who she is. She doesn't want anyone to know about her past. Um, so we see Claire's story. Alongside Claire's story, we see um, a podcaster like you guys called Nula Fox. Nula has written an award-winning true crime podcast about the killing of nine of nine people at Black Valley Farm 10 years ago. And throughout the book, gradually Claire's story and Nula's story um, come together and gradually we learn what happened at the farm and how Claire was involved and... That's kind of basically it. And there are lots of themes in the book, as you've alluded to. There's lots of characters who are deeply unpleasant. Oh, yes. Um, and partly that's because I just really like writing about nasty people because they're really interesting. <laughs> and I think partly as a writer, you can't help sort of just exploring topics that interest you. So for me, you know, there's a lot of themes around, um, it, I think, feminism, really. And, and th 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 there are three central characters in the book. There's Claire, there's Nula, there's also a character called Andrea. Mm -hmm. And for me, really, the book is about how each of those three women, in their own way, deal with trauma very differently. They've all been through traumatic experiences and they all handle that trauma in a very different way. Mm -hmm. In your book, you also describe a sort of cultish community, mm -hmm. uh, yes. which which is uh, fun. I mean, it's not funny, but it was uh, uh, unusual. Yeah, unusual and a coincidence because before I uh, read your book, I have watched uh, quite a few uh, interviews with people who left cults, mm -hmm. and you always get the same answers from them. Why? Some, some were born into the cults, some mm -hmm. joined these cults, and it's, it's, a, it's a common theme 
in their lives. And yeah. you, it is also reflected in the characters in your books, the ones who joined this community. Where did you get the idea for this kind of community from? So the starting point for the book was the idea of people living in this remote farmhouse. So I had to think, why were they there? You know, who was this community living far away from everywhere else that nobody knew about? And that was the starting point. And as I thought about the different reasons, the idea of some sort of cult-like community seemed to be the most obvious um, way to do it. Now, I don't want to give any spoilers, um, but I, one of the things I'm interested in, I'm interested in writing about women who aren't always victims. Um, so, so you know, there are certain elements of the cult uh, that are unlike what, what our perception of a cult is, I think, generally. Now, I did, um, I was very mindful of kind of getting the experience of victims right. So I went down quite a rabbit hole, actually, of reading lots and lots of interviews with people who had escaped cults. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I didn't explore in the book, because I didn't feel educated enough to do was I didn't write about the experiences of people who join a cult mm -hmm. I wrote very much from the experiences of people who were there not by choice because they were born into it or their parents had taken them there and um, and and the experiences of those people was based on a lot of interviews I read particularly with an Australian cult called the family which is a very famous cult yes you, yeah. I'm sure Yeah, and um, so and and I a lot of the I read a lot a lot of interviews with the children who'd grown up in that cult and had had managed to get away from it. Mm. So that informed some of the characters in the book definitely. Mm. It's a really difficult thing to write about, you know, and it's a, it, it's because it's not a pleasant subject. Yeah, no, yeah. and it's 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 the book touches a little bit on on the fact that if uh, people join such a cult or forced to join at a very young age and they live remotely from the rest of society, they have sometimes problems understanding our society when they rejoin. Of course, absolutely. You know, this, uh, there is a very famous book, I can't remember it, it's about, um, uh, uh, it's, it's about a young American woman. It's written in the, it's written about her experiences of growing up um, in a sort of cultish type society in America. And um, she, there's an amazing scene in the book where she talks about, she gets away from the cult and she goes to university. And um, I can't, you might remember the name of the book. If I tell you about it, you might have heard of it. But she talks about being in class one day at university and um, they're, they're doing a lecture on a topic and a, a word comes up that she's never heard of before. And she puts her hand up and she says to the lecturer, um, what's that word? I don't know what it means. And um, she's kind of ostracized in her class at university because she hasn't heard of the word before. And it turns out that the word is Holocaust. And, uh, but because she grew up mm -hmm. in this remote community, she didn't know the meaning of the word, you know, this word that, that most of us who we all know. And that, that really kind of resonated with me, that her absolute lack of knowledge of the real world, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This community or this community leader we learn about throughout the book, mm -hmm. uh, this use of religion on the one hand, Mm -hmm. And also the use of a certain kind of politics that also, uh, for me, sometimes drifts in a cultish way. Well, um, I think the use of religion. Let's start with that. So first of all, I grew up in our, I mean, I grew up in Ireland in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, so I'm very cynical, first of all, about kind of organized religion generally, um, because I grew up in, in a country that was really ruled by the yeah. church in yeah. many, many negative connotations. Um, and, and I think one of the things that cults do a lot is that religion or, or a form of religion is used as a form of manipulation, really, to to manipulate people and, and to sort of mm. get them to believe they're entering something that that's not really what it is. And and then again, I think with the, the political element of the book, you know, it's it's not a spoiler to say that one of the storylines in the book is about a far-right political party. And I think for me, that came from just really observing world politics today and what's happening mm. in this country and wanting yeah. to explore that a little bit. And, you know, particularly living in a country where we've been through Brexit and seeing... I live in Eastbourne in the south coast of England, which is very much a town of two halves. It's a town of very wealthy people and there's very deprived areas. And I remember really clearly speaking to people from the more deprived areas of Eastbourne, you know, in the lead up to Brexit. And they basically just bought all the lies that people told them, you know, because they felt completely disenfranchised and disempowered, you know, and people manipulate that feed that sense of powerlessness you know bad politicians manipulate that sense of powerlessness for their own mean for their own gains mm-hmm. you don't, and that's something yeah. that i'm just interested in you know i don't think i was making mm-hmm. a statement writing about that um but i just it's a topic that inter- interests me a lot mm-hmm. you know i think i hate how people are vilified sometimes a lot of people in this country were vilified for voting for brexit but actually Yeah. They shouldn't be vilified. The people who sold them lies are the people who should be vilified. And it was also seen in the book um, when there was a talk by this politician mm. in front of a not so well-off area. Yeah. People from not well-off area. And the excitement before it in the room, and it catches everyone in the room. Mm. And if you're amongst such a group, you get excited too. It doesn't matter if you agree or not. It's just the feeling and the energy in the room. Of course it is. And for people who have got very little in their lives, you know, for somebody to come along and give them that sense of excitement, that sense of purpose, that's very, very powerful. Mm. And it's someone talking to them instead of ignoring them. That's also important. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What type of character does one have to be to become such a person? Well, for me... And this is my very subjective opinion. I think a type of sociopath. And I, I'm not, I really don't say that lightly. That's what I think. That's what mm-hmm. I believe. You know, I I think it's somebody who only cares about their own progression mm-hmm. and what they can get out of it and doesn't care about manipulating people or damaging people or the damage that will do. Mm-hmm. Also not a narcissist. Exactly, yeah. or And or a narcissist, yes. Mm-hmm. You you said when you talked about your book just now, you said it all began with a podcast. It was also my <laughs> impression. We are not, we are not lying, my friends, dear listeners. We always tell the truth, truth well, most of the time. But our podcast host in this book, um, she also has a guilty conscience, doesn't she? She does now. The thing about our podcast host is that um, uh, I loved writing her um, <laughs> and I love her as a character. She is um, she's definitely flawed and she does bad. She has done bad, wrong things, but she's really aware of it as well. And um, yeah. and she messes up before the book begins. She's messed up something really, really badly. Mm. And through the book, she has to learn that 
the only way to sort of make up for that is by admitting what she did. And, you know, um, I really, I really loved writing her. I loved her character. I loved her, her kind of um, tiger mom protectiveness of her son. I loved the fact that she is messed up and she does bad things, but that ultimately at her heart, she's a good person. Yes, she is. And what I also found interesting about her character was, although she despises this politician, I mean, she gets the job offer, but she despises mm. this politician. But the real eye-opener was a conversation she has with a another journalist who has covered this politician or wrote about this politician before. And this conversation makes her think a bit That's more right. deeply about the character of this politician, not not just her politics, but of her as a, as a person. What's behind all this? There's more behind this than just a political agenda. That's right. That's the first time she does think that, yes. Um, and, and of course, with Nula, the podcaster, the irony is that Nula thinks that she is a woman of principle. You know, she stood up to a boss. Uh, she does everything for her son. But she's a woman of principle who constantly compromises herself by making bad decisions, Yeah. Um, and, and working with that politician is a particularly bad decision as she, as she eventually works out. And I don't think there's any spoilers by no, saying that. No, no, of course not. I don't think so. But where did you find her? Where did you find her character? She just jumped onto the page fully formed. That doesn't always happen, okay. but it did with her 100%. Okay. She just jumped. She And I really, really loved writing her. You know, I really did. So... I, I, she was she was so easy. She just kind of flowed out of me. I'm not sure what that says about me, but you know, <laughs> she did. But isn't it utterly human to have ideals and be flawed? Completely, completely. And I just, uh, you know, I'm 55 and I just look around and I just think actually most of the interesting people I know have messed up and made mistakes and they're, you know, we're all human. We're all messed up. We're all complicated and complex and... It's yeah. what makes us interesting, you know. But yeah. the thing is, of course, we have to learn. And when we mess up, we have to learn from that. And I think yeah. that's easier for other people than, easier for some people than others. Mm, true. Mm. But also admit to our flaws. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in her case, it's even more complicated because where is the line between honesty, lying through omission and being an outright liar? Is this for Nula, you mean? Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is that that's what she has to work out, isn't it? Because she doesn't know where that line is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, if I think about her, I think in her head, uh, at the, certainly at the beginning of the book, she starts out by thinking, it doesn't matter what I do once I am giving my son a safe home. Everything else is up for grabs. Mm -hmm. And she has to slowly learn that that's not enough. Mm. Yeah. It's true. Is it also, would you say, would you agree? I mean, you said there are a lot of topics in this book. I mean, we have power. We have lots of secrets. Indeed. We have guilt, lots of guilt. There isn't a character who doesn't feel guilt. Well, maybe one or two. But like you said, the villains, maybe they don't. Yeah. Uh, But family. they're traumatized. They're trauma. Yeah. Coping also, with it. Some, even the villains are. So on that, actually, now I will say... Um, I did write that book as I was coming out of a particularly traumatic time mm. in my own life. Um, and one of the things I realized about Claire, so Claire is very, very traumatized, mm -hmm. the central character. And I didn't realize until the book was finished that actually 
I had been writing a book about trauma, and um, <laughs> particularly Clary's trauma. I, 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 it wasn't what I set out to do, and um, but that's what it definitely did become was the book about trauma. And I think I was, it was, and I always say because I really believe that writing for me isn't about therapy, but um, in some sense, I think that book was a little bit. Mm, yeah, maybe. But the female, you said the the male characters before also that yeah. the male char characters well not all of them because most of them but most of them are not very nice let's lit. say yeah uh, the They women are traumatized but there mm -hmm. is also with, with the women there's also good and there is bad we we do have a different point of view when we talk about women and being good and bad don't we we hold them to a higher standard well so there's a few things about that first of all we Okay, society holds women to a higher standard, yeah. but also we hold ourselves to a higher yeah. standard. You know, um, I look around, for example, at all the mothers I know, and mm -hmm. we hold ourselves to ridiculous standards that men just don't do. Like, we're ridiculous, you know, and we are, we put this expectation on ourselves to be brilliant mothers, to be brilliant at our jobs, to be brilliant wives, to, to look good. I mean, it is utterly utterly exhausting I think it's exhausting um, and one of the things I love about getting older as a woman is kind of just letting some of that stuff go you know and just not caring so much but I look at younger women coming up behind me and they're still doing it they're still you know carrying the burden of being a working mother that it's it's really tough being a woman is really tough and then for the younger generation who have all of the ongoing influence of social media telling them how to look and what to eat not 24 hours a day that's even harder yeah so so I, i'm going to keep talking for a minute yeah, yeah. so on that um i think you the point you made is edith or were starting to make was um you know that the women are possibly a lot of the women are more three-dimensional in some ways than the men in the book apart from leo i think possibly mm -hmm. who i i got a very sort of quite i think a rounded story yeah. um but really honestly That's because I just love writing about women. I'm interested in women and women's experiences. And actually, I, there just wasn't room in that book to write about lots of men as well. You said so that Leo is a different kind of person. But Leo, we, we learn about Leo when he was a boy. So it might be easier to give him more than just a one-dimensional personality. Because Maybe. He, I mean, he's not the villain. He's also just like the women, A person who has been traumatized by his experience. Exactly. exactly. And I, I want, you know, there had to be space for Leo because, you know, he's, he's really a key part of the story. Yeah, exactly. This turn of events at the end, again, I have to say, I'm, I wouldn't make it as a detective. I'm useless <laughs> uh, because I fell into the trap. Yes, well done. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a good uh, turnaround and I thought, oh, Goodness me, when we learn about what really happened. And may I say that I got the impression that everything that was going on with this um, community, it reminded me a little bit of Handmaid's Tale. Mm. And I don't know if you heard of this organization they had during the Third mm. Reich, Lebensborn. Have you ever heard of that? No. No. It was a sort of breeding program. Okay. By, by the SS. And it, it, it reminded me a little bit of that because they used blonde, blue-eyed women for the SS to produce blonde, blue-eyed children. 
Okay, gosh, how horrific is that? Yeah, they 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 sometimes kidnapped um, children from the from the eastern parts of Europe, which they conquered, and they mm -hmm. also yeah uh, kidnapped women and put them in their homes. They are called Lebensborn, and they had the their their the point was to produce uh, children with SS. Soldiers, officers, special features. Yes, with special features. Mm. Well, I didn't know about that, um, but of course, in the book, I guess um, uh, the re there is a reason why specific women are are in the farm. Yeah. But uh, um, and and also, I guess um, it just it just shows that I mean, over time, women have been used for that way. You know. Yeah. Which is awful. And the sad thing is. They actually wanted a better life. Hmm. Say hmm. that again. They actually wanted a better life when they no, agreed of course, to go that's there. It, that's it, yeah. And they're and, exploited and, and actually, again. That, and that's a classic, um, It's again, it's a classic manipulation technique, isn't it? To promise yeah. somebody an escape from something terrible and to promise them something better. Because hmm. all of those women moved there believing that they were moving to somewhere good. Mm, better life, safer life. Yeah. Also for yeah. the children to change something and look where they ended up and how this whole trauma started for them. And years later, they still haven't coped. I mean, Claire. And a lot of them feel guilt. Yeah, Claire feels guilt until the end of the book. Right, right, well, right to the end. Claire has, I think, really kind of typical survivor's guilt in a way. Yeah. And extremely. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, even, even at the end of the book, she... She still hasn't coped with any anything. She still feels as if she ha has to reveal her secrets. Well, I think um, I didn't want it to tie it up too neatly for Claire because um, mm. you don't just get over a trauma like that. Yeah. You know, I think if, if yeah. it had been, if, if initially the, there was a very different ending, to, um, but actually mm. at the last minute I wrote that final chapter mm -hmm. and that just felt like a much better way for the book to end, you mm. know. Mm, I know what you mean, saying that someone who has uh, experienced such horrors has lived yeah. with the guilt all those years and uh, this, such a person can't overcome it without help. You because can't turn it off. With just like that. No. I mean, I wanted, I think, and I do think the ending for her is, is hopeful, yeah. but, uh, you know, um, it couldn't be just all twee and lovely and, you know, here we are happily ever after you know mm -hmm. i think there had to be uh, there had to be more nuance to it i think than that mm. but also in in this way it makes you think for a longer time because if the book is everything is tied up neatly it's nice and you let it go more easily than yeah. if it if it's not because it makes you think more yeah well i hope so um i just uh i really that last chapter i really wrote it from the heart you know really wrote it from the heart and kind of one draft and um Yeah, it just felt right. I've, I've realized the more books I write that I can't write the last chapter of a book until I'm on the very last draft of the book, just before it's about due to go to my publisher, because it's only then that I really understand how it should end. Mm. Well, were you tempted to set the book in Ireland? Now, <laughs> um, the reason I say now is um, I haven't yet written a book set in Ireland, but I I'm just finishing a book. Uh, that's coming out next year that is set in Ireland. Um, and the reason I didn't set Black Valley Farm in Ireland was 
England, Britain, it's just a bigger country. So there was better scope to mm-hmm. have to choose a really remote location because Ireland's very small. Mm. So I just couldn't really, I couldn't, of course, there are lots of remote places in Ireland, but it made sense to to put it in a bigger country where there's more space, yep. you know. And your other series, maybe also learn a little bit yeah. about your other books as well. Like I said before, the D.I.L. Kelly series has also been translated into German. Um, mm-hmm. what, what can you tell us about this other series of yours? Okay, so my first series of books um, is uh, features an, a, an second, a second generation Irish woman called Ellen Kelly. She's a detective in South London. Uh, mm-hmm. She's recently widowed when the series begins, mm-hmm. and she's got two young children. And one of the reasons um, she's widowed uh, it was it's kind of a device, really. I, at the time, I had two young children, and I wanted to write about like what it's really like to be a working mother having to juggle the responsibilities of parenthood and a job and feeling like you're not doing any of them right and um, so Ellen I loved writing Ellen uh, she's uh, quite a different character to me she's very morally black and white and um, so she's very unambiguous in what's right and what's wrong and um, you know she believes that criminals are wrong she believes in justice when she believes in a tooth for a tooth an eye for an eye um, very different to me she also believes in the death penalty which I absolutely don't And um, I used to get a lot of um, letters from emails from people saying, oh, well, it's lovely to meet a writer who, because people think that I, I have the same <laughs> views as my characters. Uh, but she's a great character. She, I loved writing her. And then I have another series featuring a middle-aged, well, I say middle-aged in her 50s, uh, an in, investigative journalist called Dee Doran. Mm-hmm. That's based in Eastbourne, where I live. And at the start of the The series D is really um, uh, in a bad place. She has um, been fired from a career as a really successful journalist in London. Uh, both her parents are recently dead. Um, her marriage with an alcoholic husband has recently broke up and she's sort of really in a lost place. Um, but through the series, she kind of finds redemption and turns her life around. And um, yeah, I loved writing her. I, I, I found writing a police procedural, which is my first series, I found writing that quite difficult because with it, not difficult, but um, you have to do a lot of research mm. for procedurals. You have to get all of the police procedural stuff right, which is basically why my second series had a journalist, not, not a police detective, because I didn't have to be so rigorous in my research because <laughs> I'm lazy, right? <laughs> and you have more freedom with her. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I must say, um, I loved writing both my series. I'm not 100% sure. A lot of people have asked for more of each of the books in the series. Um, but I think I prefer writing standalones because there's much more scope. You know, each story that you move on to, you can have completely new characters. Mm. There's much more freedom, I think, in writing standalones. Mm. Um But it is harder when you write crime fiction because publishers and a lot of readers want a series. So, mm. Yeah, I can understand it. May I also ask you, which you prefer to write? Or maybe mm. you prefer both or you haven't uh, decided yet which you do like best. First or third person narration? Because in Black Valley Farm, you you change this kind of, of narration. Yeah. Black Valley Farm is the first book I've written with first person narrator. Oh. And I'm trying to think in the, the one I'm writing now set in Ireland. There's no, there's minimal first person narration in the, the prologue and the epilogue, but that's it. And um, I honestly don't have a preference. I think you choose it based on what feels right for the story. 
So Claire, um, the character in Black Valley Farm, she's written from a first person perspective. But in earlier drafts of the book, that was third person. Mm -hmm. But writing in the first person for Claire just felt maybe made me feel closer to her deeper inside. I'm not really sure why it just felt Mm -hmm. right for her character not really for a technical reason that I can explain. It just felt right. I think you have to go with what feels, because also Black Valley Farms, the first book where I've got any present tense uh, sections. Mm-hmm. I haven't done that before, but I have done it again in my novel that I'm just finishing now. And that's something that feels very immediate and which mm-hmm. I, I've liked, actually. Mm-hmm. More action. It feels as if you are in, in yeah. at the moment within the action, uh, part of the action as a reader. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. And definitely with the first person narration. And I, I don't yeah. I'm not sure, um, but I'm wondering if with first person narration for me, it seems to make it feel pacier, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also for the reader. Think, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. Because you also read um the uh, parts of the story from Nula's point of view, but it's not yeah. first person. Yeah, that's what got that's what you got confused with yeah. and she always asked me isn't that first person is it no it's come her on point of view, it's, but it's, it's her point person. of view but it's a third person but yeah, you get you, and you get confusing. the feeling so point of, and now i think so point of view is writing from which a character's yeah. perspective yeah. that can be first person or third person yeah <clears throat> but you can do both it's uh yeah point of view is quite um it's quite a thing that i had to learn at the beginning when i was Ooh. writing actually because when i started writing mm-hmm. I wrote my books like I was watching a TV series. So I had to learn about point of view and and learn to kind of, you know, and how my husband described it to me was you have to kind of be inside the character's head looking out and you write from that perspective. Yeah, but for you as a writer, it's always completely clear which point of view you have. Maybe not for the reader. But that's why you have to. Yeah, that's I why know. you have to make sure as the writer you're yeah. in. You know, you're doing it that way inside the character's yeah. head looking out. Because otherwise it's confusing. And I yeah. find reading, I can see when I read books where the writer isn't clear about point of view and it is confusing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. But for the writers, it's absolutely clear. It's like when I'm talking. I know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Maybe the other person yeah, doesn't exactly. know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. But you, you know perfectly well what you're talking <laughs> about. So why can't you follow Teacup? Yeah, we're around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, or something like that. And... What about what about your writing process? It's always an interesting question to ask authors how they do it. Planning, that's my pantsing. favorite, favorite, favorite thing to talk about too, <laughs> because it's so interesting. And the reason it's so interesting is because we're all so different as yeah. writers. It's it's amazing. So, um, right, my process is the more difficult one, which is the unplanned write and see what happens process. <laughs> So I would love, I'm very good friends with a writer called Marion Todd. Marion Todd plans her books like you wouldn't believe. She has a spreadsheet. She has like her books. She, she literally has, before she starts a novel, she has a spreadsheet and she has PowerPoint slides with the whole story plotted out. And it's a really effective way to write because you've got it all plotted first and then you can just sit down and write My process, let me tell you, is I have an idea. I start writing. I write about 30,000 words. It's rubbish. So I start again. I write about 30,000 words. It's rubbish. I start again. I might get to 40,000 40, words. 
It's unbelievably painful and time consuming. And I have tried really, really hard to do it the other way, but I just can't. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't work. <laughs> so the book I'm working on now that is coming out next year, that was 12 drafts of pain. 12 drafts of pain to get to where it's got to now. Black Valley Farm was eight, I think. That's before it goes to the publisher and goes through all the edits. Mm, it's a lot. It is a lot, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's the only way I can do it, you know. And I've kind of um, accepted now because I tried, I spent a long time trying to do it the other way. And actually, um, I just lost a lot of the pleasure in writing. And I've, I've realised now I need to go back to just letting it go and going with it and seeing where it takes me. Do you even put that much work in the first draft when you know it's not going to be good? Do you know what? This is the worst thing. Yes, I do. I'm an <laughs> eternal optimist. It's insane. It's ridiculous. There is a part of me that somehow still thinks this is going to be great this time. And that's because there is something magical about creating the story, right? So every time you do get caught up in the magic and you and I, you have to keep going while the magic is happening, it stops. It always stops. Mm. And then there's a little piece of you that doesn't believe it stops. So you push it a bit further, but you're it's too late then. Um, but, but in a way, each draft, you know, you're getting closer mm -hmm. to something that's eventually going to be the end. Um, and, you know, I would say Stephen King and Harlan Coben, both of my process. So it, can't, it works. For, it does work. You get there eventually. But you stick to the same idea from the first to yeah, the last draft. Okay. There's always... There's always a central idea. So, and sometimes it's just an image. So with Black Valley Farm, th that was kind of, it was good in a way. That's quite a strong idea to work with, you know, nine bodies mm -hmm. discovered mm -hmm. in a remote farmhouse. But the book I'm writing set in Ireland, I had an image for that. And the image was a beautiful five-star hotel in Dublin, a group of beautiful people sitting in a conservatory, you know, just looking beautiful. That was that was the image in my head. And then the whole book was about who are these people? What are they doing in the hotel? What's their story? And that became something that is now a very, very different book. But that was the central image. That's all mm -hmm. I had to go go with. I, I can understand that you say, okay, I write a draft and I write another draft. But you said the police procedure mm. is something very different because you do need some sort of I don't know, points which you can follow because, like you said, a, a police procedural is a different cup of tea. Um, well, so what's different about it is you have to get the police research bit right. Um, but you see, you're still telling a story. So mm. the story uh, with for police procedural, I think, certainly for me, you have to get the story first. Once you've got the story down, mm -hmm. all of the technical policey bits, you can, you know, <laughs> work out later mm. so when I but but the, when I when I started writing the Alan Kelly books um, I was too nervous because it was my first book right mm. I was too nervous to ask any police people for help and um, because I didn't want them to think I would I don't know I was just too shy to tell people I was writing a book yeah. so um, I sent an email to my local police station in London because um, I thought an email is okay I sent an email to their press office I think And then um, I started like, really polite saying, I'm writing this book and I've got these questions. Would anyone be able to help me? And I heard nothing for mm. ages. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> they just think I'm this stupid person asking these really stupid questions. 
And then about nine months later, I got this email reply back from the police station. And it was just so sweet. I got this absolutely massive email trail. Mm-hmm. My email had been sent to different people all throughout okay. the police station who'd all added comments and all replied. So I got this massive, massive, massive big load of emails, which was really lovely. You wouldn't and believe it, would you? Copy the book yeah, published. you wouldn't believe it, would you? Mm-hmm. How, yeah. how, how, do you how much do you like to talk about that job? Well, that's the thing I know now. So yes. now I have no problem asking anyone. And people do love to talk talk about their job. With The Lucky Eight, which is my book about the plane crash, oh, my God, I, it was amazing. I found this guy who was some kind of aviation specialist, and he was amazing because not only did he just, like, <clears throat> tell me how stupid loads of the stuff I was proposing was, he also got really involved in trying to come up with kind of ways to make it happen. And and you, it was lovely. And you just think, and this is the great thing. There's so many people, like, me doing this podcast is such a joy because I'm talking about the thing I love doing, right? Yeah. And you're right. People love talking about the, the things they're passionate about. I always suspect that... People talk about their job or whatever they experience during the day to the people around them all the time, and they're not so interested anymore. So if you find someone who really is interested in what you're talking about, you're so excited. Well, do you know what? The other thing is nobody in my family cares a jot about me and my writing, which I love. <laughs> But um, if I sat down at dinner every night and started talking about my writing process, my family would laugh at me <laughs> and tell me to shut up. So, you know, I need it. You guys are my outlet for talking about my writing process. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank and we love to listen, to hear about your writing process. Because like you said, everyone is different. Some people go with the flow, just like you. Yeah. Some, like you mentioned, Marion Todd's, they keep on planning, which I find... Uh, It okay. sounds like a storyboard. Yeah, exactly. Things. Completely. Completely. Uh, yeah, yeah, and the others are somewhere in the middle. Her. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's what she needs and what helps her to get the mm-hmm. story told, perfect. Yeah, and the lovely thing about it is there's not one correct way. Exactly. Whatever works for you, it's fine. And and I think it's having the confidence to know what works for you. That's the really important thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Did I mean. you find it out after a few failures? <laughs> and, you know, writing, like all things that are worth doing, you know, writing is involves a lot of failing. You know, you, you're trying stuff all the time. And anything creative, you know, it's about getting stuff wrong and learning from that. And, mm. Uh, mm. It's, it, you know, it's... One of the reasons I love writing because it's it's I do yoga and I'm really bad at yoga, but I love it because like I know I will never get bored with yoga because there's so much to learn. And I kind of feel like that about writing. You know, I'll never be as good as I want to be. So you're never going to get bored with it. You know, you keep going, keep mm-hmm. trying new stuff. Exactly. You can always learn something new. And for us readers, we can always read something new. Mm, yeah. What also my question is for you. To date, it is Agatha Christie's birthday. What is it about crime fiction that keeps us so interested in? Why does it never get boring? Well, there are a few reasons, I think. First of all, I think that crime fiction is such a small name for such a massive genre. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's so huge, the genre of crime fiction. So, for example... I'm a huge fan of an American writer called Megan Abbott. I'm also a fan of American writers like 
Dashiell Hammett, for example, you could not find two more different styles, two more different types of books. I love cozy crime fiction. Um, it's so broad, the genre. You know, you've got everything from cozy crime to domestic noir to, you know, noir books to thrillers. So I think that's one thing that when we say, why is crime fiction so popular? It's because it's so broad. Mm. You know, there's so many different types of crime fiction. And also, it's just a lovely way, isn't it, of, of exploring our fears in a safe environment. You know, you read a, cr- a book that scares you and you can, ex- you know, you can experience being scared. You can experience terror and fear and danger, but in a really safe environment, you, you're safe because you know nothing bad's going to happen. And also, generally with crime fiction, you kind of know that the bad guys will get their comeuppance. And that's quite satisfying, isn't it? True. But did you listen to some true crime podcast for Black Valley Farm? Yes, I did. Uh, not particularly, not I, not specifically for Black Valley Farm, but I had listened to, mm-hmm. I, I love good true crime podcasts. I love them. Um, and one of the things I did do, because um, I, I became really, I did a lot of research on the ethics of doing a true crime podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because the ones I've listened to that are really good, you know, I, I thought a lot about how do you do a true crime podcast and it not be really manipulative and not be taking advantage of other people's pain? Um, and there are a lot of ethics about it, actually. There's kind of a code, which I do refer to in the book. Um, you know, There is a, a quite a strong moral code that people who do good tri- true crime podcasts really do follow, mm-hmm. um, which is about you know not being manipulative and about being truthful and lots of things that Nula wasn't very good at, actually. <laughs> Yeah, but she was successful. Yeah, yes. indeed. And she did it for a success, I guess, not for the truth, the story. Well, you see, and she started out wanting the truth and then she got compromised. But another thing I, I did was um, I did loads of research into um, journalists who've lied. Um, mm-hmm. And there's loads of stories out there. There's loads of kind of quite famous stories about journalists who um, lie, have told really big fat lies in stories and stuff and um, sometimes got away with it for a long time and then been caught out. Hmm. So that that was very entertaining for quite to read up about all of that. Is it because they repeated the lie again and again until it is believed or? Well, I think, um, yes, I think once you've lied publicly, you can't really take that back, can you? That's a very hard thing to do. Yeah, when it's out there. Yeah, so there's stories of, you know, journalists who claimed they had been war heroes and stuff mm. and they'd written about their experiences. And, um, I mean, if you take that back, if you hold your hand up and say, I've lied, that's your career ruined, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're done, especially have you journalists. Guys, have you guys read Yellowface? No, not yet. No? No. Oh, you must read Yellowface. It's a it's a, a really good book that came out um, earlier this year. I heard it's about it. Mm, yeah, so it's a crime novel, but really, um, it's more of a kind of culture commentary on kind of all sorts of stuff. Anyway, um, mm. that I thought of Yellowface because that's about somebody who does something very dishonest, and then the whole novel is about her trying to get away with it. It's really good. I'd really recommend it. It's good fun. Mm. Doing something horrible. Trying to get away. How far does one go to get away with well, it? Well, that's the that's the thing, isn't it? How far do you go? How, and and what would you do to protect your reputation? And and part of that book is about she becomes more and more famous. So of course, the more famous she becomes, the more she doesn't want to lose that fame. 
because there's a lot of money in it as well, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then but you have to be careful because when you lie, you have to have a good memory. Because <gasps> one know, lie usually leads to another one. Mm-hmm. And then there's, um, I heard an interview recently with um, an actor called Chris O'Dowd. I'm completely going off on a tangent here, but this is quite a good story. He's an, an Irish actor mm-hmm. in America. He was in the film Bridesmaids. I don't know if you've seen that, but um, he mm. said that when he was starting out in America, he used to go to interview, to go to auditions for jobs. But, you know, you'd be one of so many people. So he'd always invent this story at the beginning of an audition that he'd been attacked by a dog. <laughs> and so he'd go and say, oh, my God, I've just been attacked by this dog downstairs, but bit my leg. And he went into an audition one day and he told this whole story about being attacked by a dog. And the guy said to him, um, oh, you're so unlucky. This is the second time you came into this <laughs> building and got attacked by a dog. <laughs> Oops. Oops, indeed. So that's, yes, you, if you're going to lie, you need to remember what lies you've told. But he was remembered, on the other hand. Yes, but the, it, he didn't remember, unfortunately. It was the other people who remembered. Yeah. No, that's bad luck in this case for him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sheila, what would be your advice now after having written so many books to any other author out there? I think a few bits of advice. The first thing is that you just have to write and keep writing. Um, mm-hmm. I would say one piece of advice I always give is I see a lot of aspiring writers who do endless um, creative writing courses. And while it's good to do a creative writing course, I think that lots of people do lots of creative writing courses because it avoids sitting down to write a book. And actually, sooner or later, you have to sit down and you have to write. And what you have to do when you start writing is you have to keep writing. Um, And it's really difficult and it's very lonely. But so what I would say and what really helped me was setting a daily word count at the beginning, Mm. you know, so sitting down and saying, right, today I'm going to write 500 words. And you do that and you stick to that, because if you've written 500 words a day over a week, you know, you can see the progress you're making, which is really good. And just keep going and keep going till you get to the end of your first draft. It's not going to be perfect, but don't do like I said earlier that I keep going back and I stop at about 30,000 words, but I didn't do that at the beginning. At the beginning, you need to keep going to the end mm-hmm. until you have a first draft of, and you've got a first draft of something that you can then then work on. And that's way better than having a first draft of nothing. And then chuck it into the bin. Well, you don't chuck it in the bin, but you go and you rewrite <laughs> yeah. it and you rewrite it. Yeah, exactly. And most of writing is rewriting. Yeah. But when do you stop the rewriting? I mean, you have this draft and you, you, you said you mm-hmm. rewrite, rewrite, but at some point you, have, you also have to stop the rewriting, don't you? That is such a good point. Yes, you do. So in a way, there are, yeah, so there's the, the type of aspiring writer who does endless creative writing courses to never have to write. Now, I have many good friends over the years who have never been able to stop rewriting And actually, you have to stop eventually. You have to start sending your book out to people. You know, we could, every book I've written, I could keep rewriting it to death, but then I wouldn't be a published author. You know, you have to, and it is, it is really hard to know when is good enough, good enough. And that's why I think, um, especially before you have an agent or before you have a publisher, you need to have a few trusted people Mm. around you who can tell you when it's ready, when it's time to go now. It's time to let your baby go out into the world. Yeah, and risk being, I don't know, getting bad reviews. I mean, who doesn't get them? Well, you know, there's a lot of rejection, especially in the early stages. Yeah. But every rejection will, you you know, pe- good agents who have time might tell you things that they think could be improved. 
Yeah. And on you go from there. Also, and this is worth saying, my first two novels never got published because <laughs> nobody wanted them, you know? <laughs> so I had to write a third one. And luckily somebody wanted that one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, why not? Of course, today with Amazon and, and, and other other platforms, it's easier to put out your book. But hmm, I think, what about the quality? I mean, it's easier. You, people can get them out, which is, is good, of course. But what about the quality of those books? Do we have to worry about the quality of those books? So there are loads of self-published authors who are doing a brilliant job, yeah. um, who do it properly. They get, you know... They have editors, they have people who professionally design their covers um, mm. and they do a fantastic job. But there are also people who just put their books out there and in a way, good on them if that's what they want to do. Um, but as a reader, if you're paying money for a book, you know, you are right to expect a certain amount of quality, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I would never say to somebody, don't self-publish because it's it, it's huge now. And, um, you know, loads of people are making lots of money self-publishing really good books. Uh, but I would say if you're going to self-publish, get into the self-publishing right, self community and work out the right way to do it so your book has the best chance of being really good. Mm. And how worried do we have to be about AI? Because there was hmm. this, I think yeah. this week, there was this article about Amazon and the sort of fake books where a... Artificial intelligence uh, was used to publish books and with other different names and so on. And with the, the books went real and they got into trouble already with this kind of, uh, you know, output. Yeah, I mean, there's another crime writer whose name escapes me at the moment who came out a few weeks ago and said that he used AI to help write his latest novel, not to help write it, but in terms of kind of, I think he used AI for research and stuff. Mm -hmm. So part of me thinks, well, I mean, for all of us, it's not something we can avoid, right? AI is here and it's going to stay with us. In the short term, um, I don't think any AI books have been written that are of any good kind of literary merit. So I don't think we have to worry too much. And I think longer term, We have to find ways to work with AI that that improves all of our lives rather than makes it worse, you know. Um, and that's a, going to be a huge challenge, isn't it? It must be like, you know, I mean, it's it's an exciting challenge if we can get it right. Because think of all the amazing things AI is going to be able to do in the world of science and medicine. It's going to yeah. be amazing and change, save lives. But it needs to be managed so carefully, I guess. Mm. I mean, I, I don't want to be out of a job because of AI. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me, me neither. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We have to learn to deal with it. I mean, yes, it, it probably depends on the politicians setting mm. the rules, the fr setting yes, the framework. And that's yeah. what the companies are asking for, actually. Yeah. And I think the danger is that, um, you know, the politicians will never be as educated about AI as the people <laughs> developing the AI, you know. Sometimes. That's, that's often the case. Yeah, sometimes you, you have to wonder what politicians are educated in. But anyway, <laughs> that's another that's another topic for another podcast. It's another podcast. Mm -hmm, indeed. Sheila, can you elaborate a little bit more on your plans? You've mentioned them a few times now, but what can we look forward to? So my new book is called uh, Dark Road Home. And it's set in Ireland, so I'm very nervous about that because it's the first book I've written set in Ireland. Um, it's really, really, really different to Black Valley Farm. It's about the, 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 the basic premise of the story. It's about a woman called Leah Ryan 
who returns home to Ireland after an absence of 18 years. She comes home and she, through a series of different events, is is forced to face up to the circumstances of why she left Ireland 18 years ago and never came back. Mm-hmm. And it's it's much more um yeah it's different it's different to Black Valley Farm it's it yeah it's it it's about um it, it a kind of central theme of the book is about um uh, quite a toxic friendship between two women two young girls mm. okay the past again and now that's the thing I am a bit sort of hold you know my books there's always a bit of the past coming into the present because mm. I'm so interested in you know, we're all the people we are today because of the things that have happened to us. And I, I love that. I find that so interesting. Mm-hmm. And setting it in Ireland, I mean, you mentioned it before, there's a lot of past there. Well, so much. And of course, for her to have been away from it for 18 years, you know, she's coming back to an Ireland where, you know, we have divorce that wasn't there when she left. We have gay marriage that wasn't there when she left. We have abortion that wasn't there when she left. So she's coming back to a very different country. A very modern Ireland, even compared to Austria. But which country isn't modern compared to Austria? Anyway. (laughs) England these days, probably. (laughs) Even England these days sometimes. In some aspects, at least. Yeah, Maybe. Depends on what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Sheila, is there Anything else you would like our listeners to know? Um, no, I would just like your listeners to thank you very to thank them very much for listening to me going on for so long, and to thank both of you so much for hosting me. It's a real honor, honestly, and a real pleasure. So thank you very much. Well, the honor was ours, and thank you for making time for us yeah. and be so accommodating. Thank you both. Thank you. You did enjoy this episode as much as we did. Then hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you like to support us and buy us a coffee, you can do so via Buy Me Coffee and other platforms. You can find all the necessary links in the description. Until next time.